0: In 1998, I was asked by Sports Illustrated to write a profile for the swimsuit issue of Janet Jones Gretzky, Wayne Gretzky's wife. We went to lunch in Manhattan, and she was just lovely. And then I wrote this. The star of Police Academy 5, Assignment Miami Beach, has asked me to jumpstart her career. Her exact words, pick up my career. In some ways, this is like asking Sean Bradley to pick up a 10,000-pound dumbbell. The star of Police Academy 5 has not acted in 10 years, save for two itty-bitty roles. She has no agent. She has read for parts, but with little success. And sitting here 21 years later, I'm horrified. It's just unnecessarily mean and for no good reason. And I'm just saying, if you're a young journalist, resist the siren call of being an asshole to others for the sake of being an asshole to others. Because later, I guarantee you'll regret it. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang. The podcast where one writer, me, Talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Kim Severson, the New York Times outstanding food correspondent and author of Spoonfed, How Eight Cooks Saved My Life. This is episode number 222. Let's sling some yinny. Dad, your
1: podcast sucks. You're losing your hair.
0: All right, Kim. I would actually argue this is a meeting of one of the worst food writers in the history of America and one of the best food writers in the history of America. And I'm not going to say which of us is which.
1: <laughs> the, our listeners can decide by the end of the show.
0: But I will say one of us, when he or she was a food writer, once asked a chef accidentally whether he ever cooked human flesh, and it did not go over well. And I'm guessing that wasn't you. That was probably. Uh,
1: no, we we don't actually write a lot about cooking human flesh in the New York Times, but now that you mention it, these days, who knows?
0: Mid-90s <laughs> Nashville, Tennessee, and Big What? City.
1: what? caused you to ask that question
0: i was doing a story i don't know i was doing a story i was about 22 i was a forced food writer of the national tennessean because i was just coming out of college they had one opening the editor was like we'll just put you there for now i was doing a story about um a place that made weird meat and the guy was going on and on about all the meats he's cooked ah. ostrich and emu and blah blah blah, and blah 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 and i think i asked would have you ever done i don't i don't know why I don't Do you
1: ever ask? Flash, I mean, a logical question from a twenty-two-year-old. I would ask it. I actually would ask it. I wonder. Do
0: you ever have questions you regret asking? Do you ever have questions you regret asking?
1: Uh, the only questions I regret answering are ones in which um, I don't think I already kind of know the answer to, or um, or that I stumble into something stupid. You know, like like uh, maybe somebody's wife just, I'm just making this up. Somebody's wife just, I'm like, so, so you're married. Right. And then they'll be like, yeah, my wife was just killed last week. You know, like, like stupid questions like that. I regret like not knowing enough about a subject sometimes asking that, but um, I think you can, you can really um, go a long way by playing kind of um, Columbo, which is an old TV show that people probably don't know anymore, but you're like, "Uh, just one more question. Like, I don't understand this. Like, Playing the the fool a little bit is helpful, so that fits right into no question is too stupid. But mostly, it's when I um I kind of show my hand and maybe this. It's one thing if I'm saying I don't know anything about this, tell me about it. But it's another if it's something I should know and I just haven't done enough homework, or I stumble into like an awkward thing because I didn't, you know, embarrass myself some way, or I'm I have the source go. Well, this idiot really doesn't know what she's talking about, which is fine. If you upfront say I'm an idiot and I don't know what I'm talking about, but if you are pretending to know more than you do, that's usually when I get into trouble.
0: I'm really a quote unquote, classically trained sports writer, right? So I was sports writing. Oh, there you go. I was trained in the clubhouses, you know, Mm going clubhouses and in a, in a sports world, I always found softball, softball hit them with the hard question.
1: Right. Right.
0: Do you feel like that is a universal? Is that your approach as well? Or are you more willing to just go, this is what I need to know. This is what I'm going to ask.
1: I think you have to get really, I find it's best to get kind of chummy with someone a little bit, like be where they are, respect what they're doing. Um, You know, be personable with them, make a few jokes. And then, and then they're, you know, soften them up a little. And then, you know, depends on the person. Sometimes if they're clearly, Um, I mean, it just depends on the person. Like if somebody's really a dick and they're kind of being all, you know, like, I know this and I'm, they're trying to blow you off or, you know, sometimes you just have to be like, yeah, but isn't the truth this, like you have to just be straight up in their face. Other times um, you can kind of slip stuff in sideways and you're like, I know, but let's talk about that one time. I mean, you know, you were accused of embezzlement, and I'm sure that's hard to come back from. Like you can kind of, you know, I just have to really, I think, surf the, um, surf the territory. And it also depends, I think, who you're writing for. You know, if I am come in as a New York Times writer, that gave me a lot more sway than when I was um, at the Anchorage Daily News, you know, calling someone up. And I think you have to, you know, you have to kind of read how that person is going to consider you and your publication. And what you ultimately need. So I think a lot of us just kind of call it in the field, you know, like you got to kind of vibe, but I, I have found that it, it, it always generally helps to be, um, to be nice and somewhat self-effacing. And then, you know, obviously you got to, you got to, you know, you're the one who has the final say, so you can come and win the punch when you need it, but it's a different, different vibe. And I think maybe locker room culture and guy to guy things, a different deal, you know, it's, you just have to, it's. It's really depends on who you're
0: talking to, right? Yeah, well, I'm interested. Like, um, this kind of alludes to what you were just talking about. You wrote a story recently that was just great. Her family owned slaves. How can she make amends that? About a woman named Stacy Marshall who inherited a Georgia farm. turns out her family used to own slaves. And she has a, you know, a ton of her relatives are very, very conservative. And these are people you interviewed. And if I do a two second Google search for you, here's what I know. You write for the New York Times, you're gay.
1: Mm
0: hmm. When you're going in to interview Bob Trump voter, arts conservative, American flag hanging out of his pickup truck, blah, 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 blah. Does that stuff matter? Like, do you try? I hate to say this. Do you try to sort of keep part of you on the side? Would you not be like, yeah, my wife said blah, 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 blah. Are there? Yeah. Are, you know what I mean? Mm
1: hmm. Yeah, no, um, I, I do no, it's, I mean, interestingly enough, people don't go around Googling me before I come in, unless they're like a media, you know, like, unless they're more savvy to the thing. However, uh, harder than being a lesbian walking into an interview in the South is being from the New York Times. And so, the, you know, I, that that's totally what I have to play. Uh, you know, I'm like, look, I'm from the New York Times. and And I go, you know, I'm not from New York. I live in Atlanta. Um, and you know, that's me. I'm lamestream media. Ha ha ha. You know, like I, I try to disarm that New York times piece a little bit, um, first. And then also, you know, like that up when I was with the Stacey Marshall thing, um, you know, depends on if you're in, like, I'm a white person coming in, you know, and they probably don't know like what, who is this? Uh, And so, you know, that's a, that's a trickier piece of negotiation. I mean, Stacey knew all the people who, um, you know, we were going around interviewing and I would go back and talk to them without her around, but I'm still a white lady interviewing an older black man in the South. And there's a dynamic there that you just can't get around. And, you know, there's no reason this person's going to open up to me about all the shit he's endured through his whole life that I could never understand. Um, but I did pair up with a, a black photojournalist so that at least we had, a, I had a fighting chance of understanding a little bit more about that perspective. And that, but she's, you know from She's from New York, right? She lives in Atlanta now, but so there's again that country. It's like the country city division sometimes is bigger here. Um, but there are times when you know I'm places and and people go. Well, honey, what's your husband do? I mean, you know, I have a wedding ring, and you know, they're like, "What's your husband do?" And I go, "Oh, I don't really have a husband." And then they maybe don't. Maybe they can assume I was divorced, so I'm not exactly lying. And then they don't want to go on. You know. I don't want to misrepresent. Although sometimes, you know, I've been with some good old boys and then, you know, I'm like, I'll joke around and be like, well, listen, I have a wife too. I know what you guys are up against. And they're like, really? And I'm like, I'm like women. Right. (laughs) Right. And then they're kind of like, Oh, all right. You're kind of like one of us. And, you know, so it just depends. I mean that there's still a lot of, you know, homophobia on the, um, you know, on the beat, I guess I, and I found sometimes I use it the other way too. I mean, we're just going to talk about all the ways in which you represent yourself as a reporter, right? So, you know, I might be interviewing some, you know, super young, hip, woke kids who are like, you know, who's this old lady from the New York Times coming trying to talk to us about our, you know, hipster pop up in the middle of wherever. And, and I'll be like, well, you know, my wife, like, so I can at least have a little bit of street cred. I'm gay, a little bit. I mean, I may not be very cool, but at least I'm gay. Maybe that helps me get in the door. You know, like it's, you get to use what you have. Right. So are we salesmen? We totally are. We're like, and I'm so always surprised at how, if you have like a notebook and a pen in your hand, people will tell you all kinds of things. I know. I'm like, so ma'am, how do you, and like, why are, you know, I tell my friend, like, don't talk to the media. Are you kidding me? Um, but I do get a little mad. Like when you're interviewing other journalists, I don't know if you've ever had to do this, where you've had to like be writing about the implosion of Bon Appetit magazine or like the Beard Foundation, which has got a bunch of journalists who are on their awards committee. And we're kind of in the middle of this now. And there's all this internal intrigue and, you know, are the awards representative of... You know they're getting attacked for not being um, representing enough culturally and racially and anyway. And so you call up these journalists and you're like, hey, what's going on? Uh, I can't tell talk to you. You're supposed to talk to the spokesperson for. And I'm like, you are a journalist. How can you not? You know, or like are like editors of newspapers who are like, well, I we don't really comment on. That. And I'm like, you know, we're we're asking people constantly to comment for us. And 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 when you don't, as a journalist, I feel like it's a little disingenuous. Of course, I've never been in that position where somebody's like. Tell me everything and I I can't. So it's easy to say.
0: I feel like if you're getting sued, that's an exception. But I feel like otherwise, if you're a journalist and someone is calling you for comment on something, what kind of dick doesn't come? Like you've been in the shoes of the person asking, like, what is there? Right.
1: Right. I know. So it's like personnel. Maybe you're not supposed to talk, but or suits. You're right. Those two things. I know. I, I just hate that more. They say I'm like, I was like, okay, chicken shit. I'll remember this, you know, but anyway,
0: wait, I love something about your biography. There are a million things I love about your biography. Um, so you're this youngest writer in Alaska writing for the daily in Anchorage. And, um, you volunteered to cover restaurants and I saw a quote you, you gave a few years ago where you said, being the restaurant critic in Anchorage is not unlike being the best ballerina in, in Lubbock, Texas. Um, it's like, what actually made you decide to, I want to cover restaurants?
1: Uh, well, you know, I was of that kind of pre, you know, the post Watergate babies. And we all like ran off to journalism school. And we were going to change the world. And this is back when you could jump from like, you know, 40,000 circ paper up to a 60,000, you know, that whole thing. And, and I was just sort of generally trained. I was had been writing City Hall and Urban Affairs News in Tacoma. And I had was trying to kind of get my break at a bigger papers. And that wasn't happening. And um, the Anchorage Daily News had just been purchased by McClatchy. And they were had had a couple years earlier had won a Pulitzer for covering um, alcoholism among, among Alaska Natives. And so they were sort of swaggery and thought they were like the New York Times of the North, the Anchorage Daily News. And uh, so I went up there on a whim. Um, and uh, was like a kind of doing some culture editing and trying to figure it out. So this really bad um, restaurant writer, and I, I had um, you know kind of waited tables, and I've been a short order cook, and I just like to cook a lot. My family cooked a lot. I was just kind of into food, and uh, I had been the assistant manager at a Little Caesars, so you could see I was highly qualified for um, for that for the food business. But I, it was just I just you know I just thought there's got to be more here, right? And uh, so they were casting around for a new like food critic. And I'm like, well, I'll do it. I'll go review restaurants. And it was, it was kind of fun because, you know, Alaska, Anchorage had a lot of oil money back in the day in the eighties. And so they had had this like hotel restaurants and they had a lot of, um, they had like a little symphony and they had all the, the oil industry wives had, you know, gotten together and done, you know, art and civic projects and they had a lot of money to spend with the oil execs and, you know, with the big butted men in their chairs buying big California cabs. So there was that kind of culture and some chefs, but really they have like, I mean, the most amazing things that I've eaten and the, the crab that came out of there, you know, the, the fish, the salmon, the, I learned more about salmon than I'd ever, ever want to know. Um, so I learned a whole bunch, but it was just kind of fun, you know, and there was also, um I had this list I ended up doing every year called the the for anchorage list like this is the best chinese food for anchorage this is the best like for anchorage and it was kind of got to be a joke but people would write in what their favorite i mean i would say like what's your favorite seafood restaurant see in or what's or what restaurant what kind of food would you most like to see in anchorage every year i did this poll and inevitably it was like um, red lobster or olive garden it was all the chains that nobody they could watch on tv but you couldn't have in you know, they didn't have up there yet. So there was this kind of outside chain envy among eaters, even though they had this amazing crab and seafood at the local restaurant. So it was always interesting, but it was a good training ground. I got it, got me to my next job in San Francisco uh, as a food writer at the San Francisco Chronicle, which is just the break of all breaks. So here I am in Alaska, you know, like typing away and made this leap to San Francisco, um, to the San Francisco Chronicle to write about food, kind of food news it was sort of when um, childhood obesity was just starting to be a thing and they wanted to get more and food culture was just starting to be uh, kind of what it is now, the cultural currency is now. But back then it was not, uh, it was just kind of getting its its sea legs, the sort of modern you know, food culture pre-Instagram. So 99. So then I, I went to the San Francisco Chronicle and started writing more kind of food news stuff to try to get on the front page, that sort of thing. So it was a good, thank God for Anchorage.
0: When you were, uh, when you were in Anchorage and you, you're, you're writing restaurant reviews, were you comfortable with the idea of shitting on a restaurant?
1: Um, the only ones like I, uh, <laughs> one of my, uh, most famous reviews up there was, um, they opened a Hooters in Anchorage and I thought like, I've got to go review the Hooters cause I was all excited about it. I just found it, you know, egregious on a hundred levels. And, um, and it wasn't very good. And it was kind of like, you know, the hot pants and it was very sexist. And, um, you know, so I did this not good. I, I totally smashed on the on the Hooters and um, they ended up taking out a big quarter page ad in the paper. And they took like part of one sentence where I said, you might like wings and then it'd be something like, but you will never like them here. You might like wings and then go to Hooters. Like they did, they just did like, it was like a, a kidnapping ransom note where they took, some pieces of my review and ran this full paid ad that made it look like I thought it was the greatest restaurant ever. So that was their answer to, to my, you know, smashing it. But I never think you, you, you don't need to smash a mom and pop, you know, like I, I think, especially up there in a smaller market, you know, I want to tell readers where to go, not where not to go, unless a place is really demanding a lot of money. And then I think that um, people need to know how to go spend their money. And if, if a really fancy place isn't good, I think that's fair game. But I think if a little corner Korean noodle shop isn't great. Why would you write about it to pan it? You know, so this is sort of a David and Goliath thing.
0: In a way, that's a credit to you, because I feel like a lot of young writers, myself definitely included back in the day. It was fun to shit on stuff like it almost felt mm-hmm. like, you know, and then you get older and you're like, wait a second, these people are going to this is they put all their money, they put all their life savings. Right. In this, you really want to do this. It kind of speaks to your character as a young journalist that you didn't feel compelled. The siren mm-hmm. call of shitting on stuff.
1: Right, yeah, Just the big, the big ones. I didn't mind shitting on, on Hooters, but. I
0: don't know if thanks. you knew this Hooters, the, uh, the OO is actually a, it's sneakily it's women's breasts. You, you
1: know, that. I noticed that I am. Don't forget I'm a lesbian. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> breasts do not pass me by very easily. So oh, yeah. Just FYI. Good call. Um, I'm not, I'm not dead here,
0: brother. Wait, so I'm fascinated by this. Like, um, I started out as a food writer. I was horrible. I couldn't get out of my own way. I was really bad at it. I didn't understand food. I didn't do the research, nothing. You started as a food writer. Your background was, you know, you worked at a uh, Pizza Pizza. Little Caesars. Yeah, little Pizza House. Was- how did you make yourself into a legit food writer? Like, how did you actually do um, your steps?
1: So, I, you know, I knew it. Like, I I grew up with a family that cooked a lot. Like, I knew how to cook some. And I like I said, I was a short order cook for a little while. And I waited tables at some restaurants through college that were a little nicer and Little Caesars. But um, mostly, you just have to eat a lot. Like, you have to just be curious and... And you have to eat a lot. And I, because I would, I took sort of a journalistic approach. So I would go, oh, this event is happening. Instead of going and eating the food, I'll go in the kitchen and I'll write about the tension that the chef feels all night cooking for this big event. Right. So then you get to hang out in the kitchen, get to watch how things are done. You learn little tricks along the way. And you just have to eat, eat, eat like a lot of restaurants, you know, go to, you know, I would, I remember going to New York city for the first time as a, as an eater with some food people. Um, and we ate, you know, eight meals a day. Like we just ate everywhere and try, you know, it's like, um, it's like grad school, right? So you just have to, and the more you taste things, the more you understand them. Um, I mean, even if you took like, like eight bottle, different brands of bottled water, right. And you would think oh, water tastes like water, but if you sort of think about and taste each one of those eight brands, eventually, if you taste them side by side and think about them a little, then you'll, they'll start to taste different. You'll start to be able to have a language for describing why this tastes different than this one and what that's about. And they have to read a lot of food writing. you know. Under, writing, I, I'm a terrible restaurant critic, actually. I'm not a very good, you know, it's so binary, right? It's like, is it good or is it bad? So it's like movie, like some people are just born to be critics. Like some people are born to be movie critics or theater critics, and they love writing criticism. And I just find it sort of limiting in its way. Although, you know, like really good food critics like Pete Wells, who writes for us, uses that form, that bi- not that binary yes or no form to really comment more on culture and where we are. And it's like baseball, it's like any form, it's like baseball writing, right? If you have a, you know, the plays happen, the game proceeded, some per- person won, some person lost. But the real beauty of great sports writing is, you know, taking that form and understanding it so well that you can blow it up and tell some bigger story, right? Um, it's like obituaries are the same way. There's a form to an obituary, particularly like a New York Times style obituary, right? So it's written you know, this the person is notable. They date on this date from this reason. But if you if you really write a great obituary, it becomes a, like a history story, right? And it becomes um, a story about culture and, and a, a compelling narrative of somebody's life. And it's, you know, and I think um, good restaurant criticism can be like that. But I am not a good restaurant critic. I don't know how we got off on that. But I just, I, I would much prefer to be um, a reporter in, in food. And so that's helped me without having to always be critical. You can eat um, a little more uh, for education and, and more joyfully, right? If you're not constantly trying to say, is this good or is this bad? Cause it's, it kind of takes the, the love out of thinking and learning about food, you know? Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor.
0: Hey, this is Jeff and I'm here with my daughter, Casey. And uh, we've got kind of a problem.
1: Afghanistan?
0: What? No, you're going off to college and we need to find your replacement as the ad chick for Royal Retros.
1: How hard can it be? All someone has to say is royalretros.com is a great spot for all your throwback needs and throw in a few USFL references that only you and six other people even understand. Plus, does anyone even listen to this podcast?
0: Like millions of people.
1: It's weird because I've never had one person comment on my ads.
0: You're you're fired. I quit. Is there such thing as good, bad? Like I I asked this. I mentioned you, I had Alan Richmond on a couple months ago. Um, Oh, yeah. Can a whopper be good and can a whopper be bad? Or is a whopper just bad? Just as an example.
1: I think if you took like really hot McDonald's French fries and then like not very hot McDonald's French fries, you would answer that question. So I always like when I go to if the rare occasion I want a McDonald's French fry because that's a specific taste thing in my head. Right. Mm -hmm. But I always order them without salt because then they have to cook them fresh Right. And so you're because if you say, oh, I need I need my McDonald's fries, but without salt, you have to wait a minute. But they're cooking them hot. And so they're going to come to you super hot. You put your own salt on them and it's a much better fry experience than just taking what comes across the counter that whatever 18 year old doesn't give a shit about things gave you. So I think certain things like if you have a certain, um, you know, I have I have a weird little taste occasionally for like a White Castle burger which I ate a lot of when I was in Detroit in high school and kind of drunk and eating White Castle burgers. So I have this memory of them and every once in a while I'll have to eat one and it's kind of good. I always feel kind of gross after I'm not like, I'm always like, why did I think these were so good? But there's something about that craving, you know, like just that taste memory craving. So um, I think things for their own, you know, like a, a dip Dairy Queen cone, there's like, it's really good, right? It's a thing. And it's, you know, it's thing you would not call it like beautiful gelato. It's not, you know, hand spun Italian, whatever. But every once in a while, because I'm an American kid, a really good, you know, it's consistent. It's the same way every place you can get it. It's, you know, that the cone, the, the, the Dairy Queen thing, the dip, it's like all the same. It's really good. I think it's good. You know, Cheetos are really good, even though crappy food, but like a, a really good fried crisp, you know, every once in a while. Things like that, I think, can be good. What do you think? I mean, do you like? What's your fast food thing?
0: No, I love like an icy Coke. Like I love yeah. a Coke Pellet ice so with an icy Coke. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and a Whopper
1: guy. You were a Whopper guy, huh?
0: Then I became. A, then I became. A, I stopped eating red meat, but then recently Burger King came out with their Impossible Burger, impossible, which isn't which tastes pretty much the same.
1: So. Yeah, yeah, but uh, it's almost as highly pro. I mean, those that Impossible meat, that stuff is super highly like like uh, ultra processed, right? So I think it's gonna be interesting to see when people kind of wake up to the fact that like, is that, is that as good for you in the environment as, you yeah. know, is that soy processed thing still? I mean, if you're gonna be vegan, wouldn't you be vegan or, but I don't know, why did you stop eating red meat?
0: It was about 14 years ago. We were living in New Jersey for a summer. I was walking to the nearby uh, Burger King to get a Whopper. I swear to God, and I'm walking there and I see the black smoke rising from the Burger King mm-hmm. and something about that visual just did it for me. And that was it.
1: You're like, that's it. Mm-hmm. That's it. Just, it just didn't appeal to you physically anymore. Correct. And yeah. I've had a lot of people get older. That red meat thing just doesn't work. I And my, my, my wife, for example, quit eating meat for a long time because she was at some Renaissance fair or something. and She saw somebody eating one of those giant turkey legs and she just like that, she said, I could not eat meat for a long time because of that. So
0: You wrote something that there's so much in this paragraph. It's probably one of my favorite paragraphs I've read, at least on this podcast. You wrote, um, I have a state school education, a drinking problem, and I like girls, not boys. I don't tan well. I'm always 15 pounds too heavy. I'm not so great with money and I sometimes act before I think, but I'm also most days a helpful citizen of the world. I've got a pretty good sense of humor and a decent softball arm. I've gotten pretty good at being a daughter, a wife, a friend, and lately a mother, which is about 8,000 things in one paragraph that I love.
1: Oh, man, pulling out the old stuff, right?
0: So I'm the, uh, I'm the son of a, uh, of a substance abuse counselor. And so we've had many discussions in my house, just about, you know, substance abuse and what it did. It change you as a writer when you just uh, sort of turned to sobriety.
1: I remember when I stopped drinking, uh, my big concern was that, um, like I wanted to quit and I was like using drugs. I was, I was just a mess and I thought, okay, but I'm a food writer. I can't stop drinking wine. This is art. This is, you know, and, I was quickly shown the ridiculousness of that. People are like, you can write about food. You have to drink, you have to be a drink wine to write about food. You can actually do it. But I was like, how am I gonna have this lamb without a Pinot Noir? How am I gonna do that? And I had these kind of fanciful notions about that. Um uh, which were quickly, you know, after a few AA meetings, they're just laugh at you and they're like, yeah, right, whatever, Miss Fancy, whoever, sit the fuck down. Like, you know, I was like, okay, so I was addicted to cocaine, but also I still want to drink this Pinot Noir and they would just laugh, you know, and, and just laugh at me. Um, so that I got over. But the, I had a thought like, um, you know, smoking and drinking and writing were really all married in my head at one point in my career. And that idea that like a couple of drinks, you know, Marlboro, like, I'm going to write. I'm just going to be a writer, you know, and and how am I going to get loose and think about things if I don't have a drink or that whole culture of writing and drinking is so married, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I had a hard time thinking about that. However, come to find out when you actually can keep a coherent thought in your head and you can remember things and, you know, you're not so emotionally throwing up on the page, you know, you're not just like working all your shit out on your poor reader's, because you're taking care of it in other ways, you're actually a better writer, come to find out. So, um, and you're also much more employable, which has always been like, you know, important on my list, stay awake, stay employed. So, um, you know, it just made me a much more, I think a much better and more thoughtful writer and, and um, you know, a, a more thoughtful person. When you're getting people's stories, right, and you're getting them to tell you your stories and certain things, you have to have some empathy for where they're coming from. And I think having uh, walked through the fire of addiction and sobriety, um, I think that's given me a little bit more level of, of compassion, understanding, and and perhaps um, less tolerance for bullshit than I used to have. So I think it's, you know, obviously it's been a good thing. But in the beginning, I, I was really terrified that I could never write again unless I had a few drinks in me. Do you drink and write? Are you a drinker? About and a drinker? Not There's anything wrong to with it. I wish yeah. I could still be a drinker.
0: No, I'm not a drinker, but I think it's very interesting. Like when I'm working on a book, I'm very patterned, and mm-hmm. I swear to God, if I if I wore a hat yesterday and I wrote really well in the hat, I'm Get wearing the hat, the hat. Again. If I wrote at a coffee shop and I got a lot of words out, I'm going back to that coffee shop.
1: Yeah, America. yeah.
0: And it just seems like for someone who's used to smoking and drinking, wow, she wrote. Yeah, I could imagine being like, okay, what am I going to put here, and what am I going to have here, and how am I going to going to be the same? That just seems like a hurdle. Beyond just getting sober, the hurdle of getting past writing patterns that you right, need to
1: right, and and one thing was helpful was being at a newspaper because, um, you know, if you have a if you have that daily deadline kind of facing you, you don't really have. I mean, your ass could be on fire. You still got to file your story, and I had somehow had enough of that. Um, you know, pounded into my head from working at various newspapers, you know, city editors, like, I don't want it right. I want it right now. So, you know, like that was enough in me that somehow the the threat of the deadline would force me to have to write. Um, And even to this day, like writing that book that you quoted from was just brutal. And not until I realized that, you know, if I didn't get something done, that would have to give the advance back. That was enough. Like, I don't know. I admire that you write books. I, I think it's a, that self, um, Self-imposed discipline for book writing is, I admire it. Do you do like, I have to write 500 words a day in the morning sort of thing? Like, what's your discipline?
0: I do a thousand words a day. Very
1: impressive. No
0: matter what. I mean, I don't always hit it, but I know I need to write a thousand words a day. And if I don't finally do 800 today, all right, I got to do 1200 tomorrow. Mm
1: -hmm. Right. And then how many of those words end up uh, enduring? Um, I mean, sometimes it's just the process, right? Well, I mean, I have a
0: book due I'm in, I'm in bad shape. I have a book due in October. Okay. I've written about 60,000 words. It's about, are you a sports fan?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's a book about Bo Jackson. Remember? Okay.
1: Jackson? Yeah. Yeah. Nice.
0: And I'm 60,000 words in and he's only a, a college fr- freshman. Oh. So I'm a little worried about that. So, <sighs> okay. How many words but, get cut? Many.
1: Yeah. Right? Yeah. But it's kind of picks up with the rest of his career, right? That'll be easier and faster to write than piecing together. How long did you research that book? About two years. Wow. That's impressive.
0: Wait, are you as tortured as I am? Like, are you, like, the story that really got you here in many ways, I mean, i have known about your work for a long time, but your, your, your piece that I alluded to, her family owned slaves, how can, how can she make amends? Which is just a freaking master class in writing and reporting. Um, it's really well written. It's really breezy. It's really smart. It's easy to get through, even though it's a very long piece. When you sit down to write that, are you tortured or are you like, this is going to be great. I can't wait.
1: Oh, God, you know. Stories, you know, stories always live so great in my head. And and, and you know, it's the great writer's trick, right? If like you can't write, you just make another phone call and do another interview and you get all jazzed up again, like, oh, this is great. This is great. And it all lives in my head really, really well until I have to sit down and write it. And then I'm like, I am so much better at gathering information than writing it. So that part always feels torturous to me. Like, fuck, I got to write. I got to write. And this one was kind of interesting because it was a really tricky you know, usually if I sit down, I've got a food story to write. I know it's got to be 1,500 words. You know, I understand the material. I know what a New York Times food story is supposed to look like. You know, it's like building a cabinet, right? I'm like, okay, kind of think about my lead is. The nut graph's going to be this. Um, you know, what I know kind of in my head what I have to support that, what my great quotes are. You know, it's like, a, you know, you know how to build a cabinet, right? Um, this one was really different because it was um, uh, a lot of um, – I'd gone up there a lot. I had a lot of recorded interviews. It was reported during the pandemic. And it was tricky, right? Because we have to get her to trust me enough to tell me her slave family tale. And then get the, you know, the pastor who's, you know, kind of part of the story and, and hang out with him enough and get a feel for the place. And because it was the pandemic, usually I travel a lot for work and I couldn't really travel anywhere. So I just would go up North Georgia and hang out for a day or two. And so I had a lot of material. And how do you walk through? like a whole, like you've got to introduce the farm and her and the slave past and Georgia and what's the, you know, plus her land, the land, her slave owned and great, great grandfather had. He originally stole from the Cherokees and the, you know, the the Cherokee lottery. And then you had the Trail of Tears and then you have all these characters and their backstory. So I had way too much stuff. And a long time ago, I had a, um, a guy who used to do some writing coaching um, and he's like, just read through all your notes, put it all aside and just sit down and put your, have a cue, like put your hands on the keyboard and just be like, what do I want to say? You know? And so I just wrote it narrative I mean, it was about, you know, about 1500 more words and ran in the paper, but I just wrote, like I was talking to a friend, I just kind of threw everything away and just wrote what I knew from my head about the story. And that helped a lot just to do this that way, you know, because I didn't have, <clears throat> I wasn't trying to make it look like a New York Times story. I wasn't trying to make it look like anything. I just just sort of wrote. So, that was helpful. Um, but then we had to kind of make it into a New York Times story. And that was its own fight through the layers of editing. And it's tricky to write about race these days, um, I think, for a major newspapers for news organizations. You know, race is a really tricky, particularly black, white relations. It's very tricky to write about, you know, particularly if you're white, you know, it's you get to see all your blind spots pretty quick. Right.
0: If I look back at all the things I've written, all the articles through the years and I've always considered myself, I guess we all do. Like I always thought of myself as very open minded and very so-and-so and and very so-and-so. And I sort of look back. I remember when I was a college journalist and I wrote a story about an administrator at the University of Delaware, and I talked, he was African-American. I talked about him strutting around his office. Mm. And I had one write me, uh, actually, a a New York Times writer at the time named Mike Freeman, who's black, and he said, Mm -hmm. you really need to think about the words you use when you're describing people and what the word strut is actually saying the way you write it.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And I feel like I go back through my stuff and I see that all the time, just black and things I wasn't aware of.
1: Yeah, do, you do that absolutely. when you write
0: a story like this. Or are you are you combing through it afterwards for just making sure? The-
1: yeah, I mean, I um, you know, even um, there was this couple in the story. Um, they're in the early seventies, and and he was a, a assistant high school principal of this my subject, and later became a pastor, and was sort of um, a, and he and his wife were on this church, and they were sort of the uh, this guy was best friends with Stacy's dad for a long time. They grew up both black and white in this little county. Um, And he'd always been kind of a family advisor to her. And um, so anyways, big role in the story. Uh, And I was describing their house, which is this very, you know, they live on 50 acres and they're very meticulously, you know, kept up garden and house. And I said this black couple in their tidy house and, and editors like, just, are you, it's like, it's like, uh, is that the version of like unconsciously saying, oh, he's so articulate for a black guy, you know, like, am I implying that? Um, somebody might think that a black homeowner in the rural South is going to have an untidy home. Would I be more comfortable saying that about what I, would that note be important? Like if I say that about a white family, maybe it wouldn't seem as sting as much as saying it about a black family, that they have a tidy house and what that implication is. So I'm always thinking about that sort of stuff. I I had a similar thing you, you just talked about um, when I was covering um, Atlanta, more Atlanta politics and stuff early on. And Kasim Reed was our mayor here for a long time, who's under FBI indictment now or his all most of his staff is he's he left office. He's trying to come back. But there were all there's all the scandal that was swirling around him about contracts at the airport. And, um, you know, there were a couple of his um, cabinet members have gotten busted for embezzlement and other things. And he's just known as a real, you know, hand, gloves off kind of tough a politician who, kind of, you know, for better or worse, um, had a pretty strong arm over Atlanta and, and did some good things for the city, some bad. But he, I don't know if you remember a while, I don't know, many years, maybe eight or nine years ago, there was a huge snowstorm here. We had people, like kids, stuck overnight on school buses on the iced over freeways. It was just a big mess, right? And so Kasim Reed blamed the state and the uh, state roads and it wasn't his fault. And he came off really tough fighting on, um, you know, good on the morning shows, whatever. And uh, and I referred to him and he's a tough guy. And I, I referred to him as one thing as a thug, like in, in politics. And uh, and he is kind of a like a tough like he's definitely, you know, but that was such a race, really charged word for me to pick in writing about this guy. And uh, I regret that. And that, but that was that sort of thing where I just, at the time he is, a, or no, I didn't call him a thug. I'm sorry. I called him a street fighter. So I called him a street fighter. And, uh, and, and his, his comms guy was like, you're, you're calling him a thug. You're just saying he's, would you call a white tough politician, a street fighter? It's because he's black. And maybe it was, you know, um, although he was quite a street fighter, but okay. that was the same. I remember that exact same thing, you know, it's my own blind spots. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and I, I look back on stories and I'm like, God, I wouldn't have written it that way, you know? Right. So I think it's really good what we're going through. It's hard as hell, but it's good. When you send a story in like this, are you feeling
0: confident in the story or are you like, this sucks, this sucks, this is terrible, blah, 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 blah.
1: Um, I do often feel that way, but on this one I was like, Oh my God, this is great. This is so good. And it's so rich and it's so wonderful. And then it kind of went through the New York times spanking machine and, uh, um, you know, I had a couple editors I respect who are kind of high up, just read it on the back end. And I'm just like, hey, can you do me a favor? Am I crazy? Is this story in are Like, oh, my God, no, it's a great read. You just this is you're onto something. It's great. So I had more confidence. And then my um, line editor, like he didn't quite. I think he was sort of nervous about it. And then we had other editors who were like, well, we can't tell us. We can't tell a story about race centered on a white woman. And I was like, well, but it's her story. There are a lot of white people here face. So how do you know, how do we? And then people are like, we can't let her get away with this. Uh, You know, she's she's just being a white savior. And I'm like, well, I think she's aware of that. But they I mean, along the way, you have to have a little distance from your subject and like this. And so there were some some of that editing was helpful. But, um, you know, the more people who read it and, you know, somebody up in New York having some opinions about this, like white lady in the small county, like I don't think they get what, you know, they're not down here reporting it. Right. And. So I had to fight a little bit to get it in. And then at the end of the day, I think the narrative kind of won out. And I was just kept saying, this is a simple story, well-reported. That's the story we have to tell. It's not a big story about reparations. It's not a big story about the nationalists. is a tiny story, you know, that has these implications. So um, this one I felt good about and had to kind of defend more. Sometimes I go, oh, this sucks. And if you have a good line editor, it can help you, knows your cheap, cheap ass writer tricks and stops you from them. That's great. Right.
0: Wait, you just reminded me of when I used to work at sports illustrated and you'd have like six guys edit literally guys actually edit a story and we can all lie and be like, Oh, the editing process, you know, really builds blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. It fucking sucks when six it's people your story. It's oh my like-
1: God. I get a mo. I'm like, what the like there's still an editor. I I just got off the phone with him before I got on with you, who I just still resent the hell. Out of him. He's like, a, I mean, I'm sure he's a fine guy, but I'm just like, you fucker, you said this one thing about my, you didn't get it at all, and you just were in- putting your own stupid like thing on it. And I'm I'm gonna resent him for probably two or three more months at least until I get over it. But yeah, it's terrible, right? And you, they're your babies. But when you get an editor you trust who really comes in and is like. You know you can't do this, and you really trust them. Then, then it's a great process. But it's when those higher up editors who are just coming cold to the story, and they're like, "What's that that Amadeus movie where they're like, uh, too many notes? It just has too many notes." You know, you just like shut the hell up.
0: Yeah, we used to call oh. them fire hydrant hygien, fire hydrant editors. They have to pee on Nice,
1: out. nice, pan- exactly. But
0: don't you feel like there are a lot of editors who like, especially when you write for a big place and it gets a lot of eyes, like um, they, they can't just let it go by because their job is to. Literally to edit. So I find those the most frustrating when they just, you know, they're okay with it, but they have to put something in just to show that mm-hmm. they're earning a paycheck. That shit drives me.
1: Yeah. Or they're always like at us, it's like, oh yeah, but I want to just want to move things up some. Oh, yeah. And then you're like, well, then what would you suggest I move? Like they, like everybody's moving things up. Like that's their thing. Or, you know, I also appreciate like if they look at something, um, and they realize then they're culpable. And and at the times, especially, you know, you want to bulletproof your story, right? And if some editor's hands are on it and somebody says, oh, this terrible thing is in that story, how could you let that go by? They're going to be very, you know, nervous about it. But it is true. It's like if you, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So, when you're an editor, you're like, well, I I might say, you know, that it was a canine instead of a dog. I find that to be a better way, you know, and you're just like, shut the Yeah. yeah.
0: Also, I like, I like the whole, like, I'm just going to move these paragraphs up. You're like, right. I worked on that transition for 20 minutes. You're just going exactly. to moving it? You're, you're just move yeah. it. Yeah.
1: And then what do I do with this piece and this piece and all these other things that fell apart because you moved that, those four paragraphs up. Totally. Yeah. Oh my God. That Nothing makes me crazier. Now I will admit that sometimes my wind up can be a little long, you know, I'm like 500 words. I'm just clearing my throat, you know, and, and, and I appreciate a nice concise, you know, making my leads a little more concise to get to that nut graph. Um, I don't, I don't mind that, but it's the ones that come in and want to like, you've got this piece that you've crafted in a certain way and they just start pulling the threads and the whole thing falls apart. I can't stand that.
0: Okay. But
1: a good editor is a, re- I'm not going to lie. is a great thing. I've been saved so many times by good editing and the times is very, you know, like, like we went through this whole battle on that race story, like through top editors, getting it on the front page, which is its own, long, intense process at the times, you know, because you get a whole new lo- level of editors. And um, and so my editor, and even to the last minute, though, he was like, you know, here you say that as the only woman farmer, she already feels judged. Judge doesn't seem like the right word. Is there a better, and I'm like, Maybe she feels like a curiosity. He's like, yeah, that's better. So we, like, even up to the last minute after all this, we were just fly specking and word polishing. And when you get to that level of the craft of writing with somebody that you really dig, it's so fun. You know, that's like the best part of you're really polishing a story like that. It's so great. And
0: also, like, at least they care. Like, at least they care. Yeah.
1: Right. That you're there, like, what's the best word for this? And it can be maddening. And the Times has its own quirks, style quirks. Like, I'm sure Sports Illustrated did things that you just, you know, there's sort of that timesy and sheen that has to go on things. So um, it's always interesting to try to, to not fall into that, to like really tell a story and not have it sound like uh, you're trying to write a newspaper story. You know, I mean, I love newspapers. I'm a print, like I, I love the craft of newspapering. I love the sort of, egalitarian nature of it. I love that. Like used to be in the old days, like for 50 cents, everybody could have all the, everybody equally could have all access to all the information. It's a little weird with the digital divide now, but I just love everything about old school newsrooms and the kind of grumpy old city editors and the, you know, the way the Sam old sandwiches are buried on desks and all that shit. I love it. I just love it.
0: Yeah, me too. Uh, Let me throw a final question at you. Okay. You are married to a journalist. Um, that seems, I can't tell professionally only. I'm talking, I can't tell if that's good or bad because we all have yeah. our own neuroses and our own hang-ups right. and how we write and how we go about things. I don't know. Do you go to her and say, Can you read this over? Are you like, Yes, yeah, like,
1: some I mean, see it like there's a broad CNN broadcast piece that is different, you know, but so it's different and we do different things, but um, uh, yeah, I think the the advantage is you. You have both have journalist minds. So even if like you're stuck in an airport somewhere, you're both like, okay, you call this, you do this, we're going to find this hotel, get them, you get in line, like you just divide and conquer in a journalistic sort of way, Mm -hmm. which is good. Um, And there, you know, but there's that like pillow talky thing. Like, you know, when Anthony Bourdain hung himself, he worked for CNN and she gets the call early and knows that he's dead And like, uh, and I'm like, Oh, for Dane. Yeah. And so then I get a jump, like, is that, am I, I'm not going to, am I going to beat them with my news alert from like if there's a little bit of competitive, like you have to find that line of not competing, but also, you know what I mean? Like you can't scoop each other. Let's just say that. Who
0: are you? Who are are you married? I am married to my wife. Uh, She's a social worker, but she writes books. So,
1: Oh man. So you both sit there just as, do you let her read all your stuff? I do. I do. It's good, right? It's helpful. It is helpful.
0: It is helpful. Yeah. Except, when, then go this... Except when she doesn't like it, then it's good.
1: <laughs> oh my God. Well, I'm glad I've allowed you this past time to um, avoid your writing since you're on a book thing.
0: Actually, I have a dental appointment in 20 minutes. So, Oh, okay. <laughs> um, well, listen, I appreciate your time a whole lot. Seriously. I'm a huge admirer of your work. I oh my God. Great.
1: I could talk to you forever and I'm looking forward to the Bo Jackson book. Thank you so much.
0: I want to thank today's guest, Kim Severson, for joining me on Two Riders Sling and Yang. You can follow Kim on Twitter, at Kim Severson, and read her work in the New York Times. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Sling and Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I make no dollars for doing this, and I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the killer MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep Keep writing.